Hello, and welcome back to the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one year break to season seven, where our theme is Legends of Reinvention, Stories of Renaissance, and the Phoenix Rising from the Fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hi and welcome, welcome, welcome to this season seven, episode eight of the Legends podcast. I'm Sarah Faruya and today I'm here for the second time on the Legends podcast, Gretchen Miura. Hi, Gretchen. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for having yeah. me. Very oh, so, so welcome. So just a little background then. Gretchen was my first guest on season three of the podcast. And we have a really close and interesting relationship in that we met through the internet and she became my client. She was a guest on my podcast. And then from that, we started a grief circle called the Lighthouse Grief Support Circle, the Lighthouse Circle Grief Support. And we have an incredibly rich and wonderful group there that we run where we allow space for for all kinds of grief. And, And I just want you to know the evolution. If you go back and listen to season three, episode one, you'll see the evolution from then to here and what a beautiful and serious space we've created together along with our cohorts. And I want you to know, listeners, that people carry incredible things around with them, but still show up in the world just like normal. And it's our unbelievable privilege and honor to hold these stories and to hold space for these things. It's the most deep and real and important work I think that I do. And I also think that it is the place where I get to be my most human. And I hope that we open the space up for the other people to do that there too. That was a slightly impromptu introduction there, Gretchen, about what we do together. But that came out of our last podcast. So dear listener, please go back and listen to season three, episode one, where you can find the backstory there. Gretchen is a mother of four. She lives on a temple up in the northwest of Japan in a place called Oga Peninsula in Akita. The temple is Dairyuji Temple, where her husband is the priest. She's originally from the east coast of America, but also lived on the West Coast. From there, she came to Japan for a short amount of time before meeting a hot priest. (laughs) We didn't get to cover any of this the last time because we spent so much time talking about her beloved brother, Chris. And she had a creative business called Sora Bento, where she made beautiful fabric wares from gorgeous local fabrics, Japanese fabrics. She is also a mindfulness teacher, a grief counsellor. And not only that, she is also studying for a master's in intercultural communications now. So, Gretchen Miura, welcome. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. And it's so lovely to think (laughs) back to the origin story of Lighthouse Circle and how you helped create that. Yes, for sure. And also, I wanted to say that 
Gretchen does already acknowledge that she was my client. I wouldn't usually just jump in and say, this person is my client. So she's openly said that. To my first question, what is a reinvention story that you have admired or has had an influence on you? Well, I feel like I've brought more generous appreciation to my mother and one of her reinvention stories. When she was 55, she divorced my father. And this was a woman who really saw her identity as a wife and mother and her home was who she was. And so this divorce really shattered her. She totally reinvented herself. She opened up a boutique with a friend and she just loved life and embraced it and really stepped into herself. And I noticed this when I was younger, but as I get closer to her age and I understand the nuances of being a woman of a certain age and all the complexities that arise with it and being a mother and having your children starting to leave home, I think, wow, this woman was incredible. And she brought all of her intelligence and humanity and humor. And she risked so much financially and even just her social status to either divorce my father, but also lay it all on the line with the new business. And so I just admire that. And she did it joyfully. And we've talked so much about that, how we can allow space for suffering and joy to coexist. And I really honor that in her. So I'm noticing that more. I'm also noticing more about my grandmothers. I think I've shared a little bit with you as well, but also sort of in midlife, going through these big reinventions that sometimes don't look glamorous even. Sometimes they're forced on us through death or divorce or hardship. And to see them come out the other side just wiser and stronger and more in line with who they are and full of integrity is such a beautiful lesson for me. Thank you for sharing those gorgeous stories there about those people. I I actually want to hear a little bit more about this Uh, very selfishly as well, because as a woman of 52, who is going through my own kind of reinvention and transition Mm -hmm. at the moment and have been for a little while, I'm so in awe of these women who start like 55, starting again, getting divorced, shedding your identity. You said shattered, you used the word shattered. What what an incredible metaphor to use. I imagine a mirror with all these pieces and then being able to see all different parts of yourself on the mirror. And um, you said about intelligence and humanity and humor and started a business as well and did it joyfully alongside all the pain. Mm-hmm. It's just such an amazing thing. What else did you kind of, what did you know at that time yourself? Were you still at home? You were the youngest, right? Mm-hmm. So I was just graduating from college. Okay. And in the springtime of my senior year, my parents told me they were getting a divorce. And I had a very happy home life. So it was very unwelcomed news. Even my friends were disappointed. Even my friends to this day who I grew up with reminisce about how warm my parents were. So it was a really loving house. So the the news of the divorce was really difficult and it's scary, right? You don't know what's going to happen to your family. And I remember that summer I brought my mom backpacking with one of my closest friends, Ellen, into Yosemite, which is a national park in Northern California. 
And my mother was like this newborn child, just like rediscovering who she was. And I remember feeling so uncertain about that, thinking, wow, I've never seen my mom act this way before and wanting her to step into this new role. But sort of it's scary to see your parents unsure of themselves and sort of in the process of shedding their identity. And so I just remember a lot of uncertainty on my part as a child at that time, thinking, wow, what is this? And there were years where I couldn't relate to my mom because she was just so heartbroken and shattered by this. And we weren't immediately able to restructure the family. So again, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of grief and loss. (laughs) I always bring it back to this, but it was Mm. a difficult time. But that's why it's even more remarkable that she, within that, was able to say, okay, you know, this is my life now. And she had always been very stylish. She's great with people, but she hadn't worked for a long time. She had been a school teacher and then was a stay-at-home mom for a very long time. So this was a big step. It was almost like she was a buyer now. She's like, you know, and it was this whole new chapter for her. And she did such a good job. It was this boutique in New Jersey and people really started to depend on her for fashion tips and advice and like selecting the right item. And she always blended so much warmth with real knowledge about clothes. Her clients just really became a community to her. And even to this day, because she ended up selling that probably 10 or 15 years ago, they still remember her and talk about her. People just really loved her. So that's a little bit of a fuller description of what it was for her. But I admired her at the time, but I was young and there was a lot of uncertainty. Now that I can reflect on it, I'm more inspired by how hard that must have been. And I don't need as much from my mom anymore. When you're still in college or going into adulthood, you still need them to be stable for you or to offer something for you, or at least that's what I was looking for. Now I don't have that need. So I can see my mom more holistically and without the need to satisfy me and my wants as a child. So I can see her as a more full picture of a human. But yeah, I admire that about her. Wow. It sounds like that was the first time you realized your mom was a person. (laughs) I think it was. I think you're right. I think we have those moments where we start to see our parents differently. I totally agree. It's quite shocking, isn't it? When you look at them and you're like, oh, you're a human being. (laughs) That's completely separate from me. You had a life Mm -hmm. before me. You have a life after I've left you. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? What did you learn about her then, then? Do you think when you were in Yosemite and when you were, oh, that's just a, I love that story. I took my mom backpacking in Yosemite. Yeah. That's a film waiting to happen. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. She was so curious and open-minded and willing to go with it. Mm -hmm. And she always appreciated the things that I brought to the table. I don't want to go backpacking, but Gretchen's going to take me backpacking. So I'll go with her. And she was willing to sort of put her trust in me and to try something new. And it's not something that she would have ever done on her own, nor did she ever want to do it again. But we were deep in the backcountry. We were in wilderness and she just loved it. And she was fun. She was always fun to be with. 
just seeing her in that new environment, I guess, to trust me and do something that was sort of radical for her and let me guide her. So we had a great time. I remember it really vividly. And like I said, my friend Ellen was with us. So we just had a blast before I could tell, oh, she's going through something huge. She's going through something huge. And that that is startling as a child to see a parent go through something big. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of answered, part answered my next question there was like, how was that for you? Did you have to kind of de-roll and take on a new role there? I did because I think she was really searching philosophically for answers. Mm. And it opened up a closeness though, because my mom had always been just the type of mom who always had it pulled together. So she didn't really let her guard down with me too much. And here she is completely letting her guard down with me. Wow. I've always been really happy how we formed such a deep relationship in adulthood. And I think that was the beginning, really showing the other person your your true self, your sorrow, your pain, just warts and all. I remember that that summer on that trip thinking, oh God, I haven't seen this in my mom before. But that allowed room for us to build a deeper relationship. Mm. And I was just entering adulthood, you know, so I was 21, 22. So you sort of start to step up and show up differently. I'm an adult now, of course, baby stages of adulthood, but entering adulthood where that really laid the foundation for a very rich and beautiful relationship with my mom that I really treasure. There's so much in here. I still feel like a baby adult. I don't know about you. (laughs) Like what's happening? So I'm, I'm so I'm so curious about these women in their fifties. I have another friend whose mother also separated in her early fifties, and it's such an interesting time. I was just on somebody else's podcast called The Witch Way. My friend Saoirse is a musician and a mystic, and she had me on to talk about my transition from my fertile years into my non-fertile years. So that's my kind of big transition at the yeah. moment, my big reinvention right now, and. I'm sure this is down to our work together as well, Gretchen, is I'm treating it as a sacred transition from one to another. Now, because this woman's a mystic, she has a name for this and it is MAGA. Yes. So the next time you see one of those caps, M-A-G-A is the stage. You may already know this yourself, having some kind of mystical background, is that there's the stages of the woman's life as given to the mystical practice. The maiden, the mother, the crone. Mm. But whoever decided this system put another one in between those called the MAGA, M-A-G-A. And so I'm entering my MAGA years or I'm in my MAGA years. They start at about 40, go on till about 70. So I'm kind of in the middle of that and you just start to embody something different. Yes. 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 No, I agree. And I think it should be celebrated and explored and shared and it feels exciting to be having oh. these conversations, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't exciting last year when I was insane <laughs> and my body was like fighting against me in a very violent way. But even that, it makes sense now. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. part of it. And that's part of my transition and my reinvention and my renaissance in, in this period of life. Mm. And so when I hear these stories about your mom, and I think they're so important to share these stories, is it gives me great heart. Wowee. My, yeah. And so I'd love to hear a bit more about your grandmothers as well, because my grandma my on yeah. my mum's side 
also had a massive renaissance when she was 55 or something like that. Mm. My granddad died early in his 50s. She was a bit older than him. He died suddenly and violently in a car accident that he had a heart attack at the wheel. Anyway, that's one of those things. But she then had to build business herself. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was yeah. also a gambling addict and had gambled away all the money. <laughs> so she was kind of left mm. with this teenage daughter. And I was on my way. I was coming three months later. And uh, my mum, not my mum, <laughs> she had another teenage daughter. Oh. <laughs> that that would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> totally fine. But she had to take the reins of the business that they ran together and become a a postmistress, they called it at the moment. At the time, it was like, it was quite a thing in the community to have a boutique or to be the sub postmistress. These days it's different, right? But like then it was, you were part, a really big pillar of the community and she had to kind of step into this role and become a kind of boss and a manager and a business owner and all these kinds of Mm -hmm. things. They'd always been in partnership, but that was a big reinvention for her. And I often look and go, all right, I've got this in my bones. got this in my DNA. How about your grandmothers? Well, I mean, just hearing that, we've talked about this sort of this connection with our ancestors that we can tap back into it. And I think that's been a really nice learning for me because I've shared with you, I, I never thought of myself as being particularly close to my grandmothers or having this strong influence, but yet things in my life are encouraging me to reflect on that. Yeah. And then I think, well, I do have this bond. Like you said, it's it's in my DNA. It's in my bones. This is my lineage. And the door hasn't closed to that connection or that relationship. And so my grandmother's, my experience with them are too. My father's mother, I always viewed as somewhat distant. And she was an exceptionally gorgeous woman, truly beautiful, and lived a very, very long life, like mid-90s. I just never thought we were particularly close. And then this summer I was going through just tons of old photographs and every picture I'm in with her, she's looking at me with such love and tenderness and warmth and physical proximity. I thought, oh my gosh. And then there was a feeling of like, oh, I didn't appreciate that. And then there's the second thought of it's still there. It's still available to me we can still tap into this. This is where I come from. There was so much love for me and I didn't dislike her. I just, for some reason, I think I almost forgot about it, forgot about that closeness. So that's my father's mother. That's not as much of a reinvention as more me re-appreciating the relationship and knowing it's still available to me. And then my mother's mother (laughs) just always came across as sort of gruff. (laughs) She was a big part of my life. She was around a lot, but yeah, she was sort of gruff. She was raw around the edges and her husband, this would have been my mother's father died um, in their early thirties. I don't know the exact age. And she was widowed 32 with four children. And it really caused her to become quite bitter. I think that happens, right? We have losses and it breaks people sometimes. But my mother and her siblings were forever dedicated to their mother. I mean, there was no shortage of love for this woman, but she did become, from stories I've heard and then my own experiences, a bit hardened and bitter about life. But she had a very dark sense of humor. 
She was very liberal, very progressive, spoke her mind. I mean, she offered me so many beautiful qualities in life and she was always around. And what she offered me was her presence. She would just always showed up, always showed up, always showed up. However, incomplete. She showed up in her own way, drinking black coffee and whiskey and chain smoking and, you know, barking at me, but she was there. And that's such a beautiful gift to give a family member or somebody else. And so I think I tapped into that a few years ago thinking, wow, she raised four children because I have four children and it's hard, you know? And luckily I still have a partner to help me, but I thought this woman raised four children in a different era without life insurance, without gender equality, even remotely on the horizon. And what an incredibly strong woman she was. And I admire that. I admire her resiliency. And even though she did become a bit bitter, she never lost her sense of humor or her willingness to share her opinion, which I really (laughs) love. (laughs) That generation, I mean, I'm a bit sad now because I feel like that generation of kind of grandma type Mm. is kind of ebbing away. We expect so much of folk these days, don't we? You know, like, can we just show up a bit rough around the edges? I mean, I'm a goddamn coach, you know, (laughs) but I chose my tagline to be there are many ways to lead a life. I kind of want to make space for all the edges and the spikes and all that kind of stuff. But that was just a given then. This is your grandma. It's how she is. You know, we didn't try to change her. No. And we respected her and were deferential to her and we loved her. And I'll share this one story. And this does link us back to our first conversation where we really dove deep into the death of my brother. Yeah. But what I realized is about a year and a half after my brother died, my mother took my one sister. I had one sister who was in college at the time and then another sister who was just a year older than me. So she took my sister who was just a year older than me and me on a road trip to sort of get away in her own grief. It was her own way to sort of process that grief. And we drove around America for two months. But what happened is my grandmother came with us and I have all these memories again of this gruff sort of rough around the edges grandmother, but sitting in the front seat of the station wagon, just showing up and not really having the right thing to say or knowing what to do, but saying, I'm not going to leave you to my mom. Like I'm going to be here with you. And that's it. It's like, what a beautiful thing to do for somebody. And so we had this shared summer and she was always around, even though she lived about four hours away. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm Mm. so, so deeply grateful to have had those women in my life. That loss of your brother was a a kind of nuclear reinvention. Mm. Yeah. Incendiary. Yeah. So without going too far into that, go and listen to episode, (laughs) season three, episode one. And we're laughing, but this is, I, I want to be clear that this is, this is life. This is how it is. This is how it is in our grief circle as well. It's like, we can be talking about the most tragic thing. And then suddenly we're all laughing together and it's, we all understand that. So <laughs> it seems odd, but it's, it is what it is. It's like our full humanity is at the table. Yes. Tell us a bit more about your background and your childhood. 
I would say that is an incendiary reinvention for the family there. But what else? What was your most radical reinvention at that time, like before your 20s kind of thing? I grew up in a very mainstream suburbia, East Coast life. You're growing up and you think nothing could be more boring. This is just so boring. This is so suburbia. Of course, now it's very cool, you know, because it was the 80s and the 90s. And my kids think it was like so cool. I'm like, oh, it was cool. But it felt very boring to me. I guess one of the biggest reinventions, which was really powerful, is when I was in high school, I actually got sick. I had Lyme disease. So I was, um, I had to stay home for a few months. I could tell like, oh, I'm starting to lose my sense of self because I was just home and sort of languishing because you can't really do very much. And I got a brochure because this was before, you know, the internet on this program called Outward Bound, which was, it's like a wilderness program and it's quite intensive. I was like, I have to go on this. And my family was not outdoorsy. So we traveled a lot, but we were not outdoorsy by any stretch of the imagination. But I just was like, I have to go on this and you have to get a physician's recommendation or approval. And my physician would not give me approval because I was actually recovering from a pretty serious illness that really limits you. You have a lot of fatigue and you don't have a lot of endurance. So he just kept saying, there's just no way you can do this. And I would not take no for an answer. I just would not take no. Like I would not take no. And I kept eating better, exercising. And I just kept going back to the physician. I just would not take no for an answer. And he finally gave me permission to go on this outward bound, which was then in Colorado. I grew up in New Jersey and I went out to Colorado and we had actually been to Colorado before, but now we're, I'm, you know, in the Rockies and it was just divine for me. It really was. I felt the sacredness of nature. I felt like I was at church and I had never really connected to church. I grew up Catholic and we do talk a lot about spirituality and religion, but I I never felt a natural sense of reverence for that. Mm -hmm. And then when I went out into the wilderness, I thought, okay, this is sacred. This is God. And it just opened up these depths in me that started to make sense. That was just a really beautiful reinvention for me, particularly because it was coming off the heels of being sick, you know, and that's hard as a child to feel lack of energy and things like that, to then be in this really beautiful setting. And it was tough. I mean, you had to learn how to read topical maps and cook Mm. with like almost no equipment and set up tents made out of tarps. There was no bathing for a month. Yeah, it was challenging and I loved it and I really needed it. And, you know, I always tell my children to really listen to your intuition because I was like, I need this. I don't know why, but I need this. So you always tell your kids to use their intuition because you did that. You knew somewhere down inside you that you needed it. Yeah, and it was totally out of our realm. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. something anyone in our family had done or that I had ever expressed interest in. But I needed something to shake me up. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed something to inspire me. I, I felt that yearning, that longing. And so it did. And then it really, for years after that, all through college, you know, I did a lot of backpacking and wilderness exploration. And I worked at Yosemite and 
yeah, it was just wonderful for me. It really felt like home to me Mm -hmm. for a long time. Wow. Okay. I didn't know this much about you. We have really specific things we talk about. (laughs) So I didn't really know this about you. I love you. I love that you use the word realm as well. I really love that word. It gives so much breadth to the places where we exist. I love the words yearning and longing. So that kind of, I had a beautiful coaching session with somebody who's training to be a Martha Beck coach this last week. Yeah. And so she's training. So it was a freebie for me. And we did the body compass. So like Mm -hmm. identifying where good feelings sit and where Mm -hmm. kimuchigawarui, which means like unpleasant feelings sit. So, you know, using that to make decisions was really, really fun. And that yearning and longing piece, Mm. you you can know where that sits in your body. I think yearning and longing is beautiful. How long were you off school, by the way? I was off of school for three months. Three months. Okay. That's so funny because I was off school for two months when I was eight with glandular fever, which is called something else these days. I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, it was. It's it's not a good feeling to be isolated in that way. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, right? How do you think that changed you? Then, do you think it made you that outdoorsy person? It's that, isn't it? That reinvention where you saw the magazine. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Because then, actually, okay, okay, we yeah. can really draw a line here. Oh. And actually, this is why these conversations are fun because yeah. I haven't thought about it. Oh my gosh, I really haven't thought about this in a long time. So my guide, I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you have two guides on Outward Bound, yeah. right? My guide and I got along really well. And uh, again, it's very intensive. It's a month, you're outdoors. And he was really young thinking back towards this. He, I think must've been 24 at the time. And then his grandfather passed away a few years after that and gave him um, you know, he had an inheritance and he created a company called Where There Be Dragons. It's a thriving company now, but he started it and he brings teenagers to Asia to travel. But again, it's it's very aligned with like the local culture. It's done with a lot of reverence for the local culture. So you volunteer, you learn the language, you learn about the culture when he was beginning this program, he sort of quote unquote needed like guinea pigs. He needed a little cohort to go with him. And so he asked me the following summer. So yeah, it was only one year later. He asked me, he said, would you like to come to China with me? I'm starting this company and you don't have to pay because I just need people to come. Like your friend just did this freebie for you. And my parents were like, I don't know, because this was the nineties, right? Like, right. (laughs) Yeah. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like, do you want to come? for a month. And of course I wanted to go, but my parents were hesitating. So he came out to New Jersey and campaigned and like met my parents was like, you know, I'll take good care of her. So I went to China and that totally opened up this door to Asia. And it was absolutely those moments of like, where am I? Again, imagine growing up in suburbia, New Jersey, and then you're in Beijing or Chengdu or Xi'an and you're traveling and you're 18. And just this world is like, this is the world is my oyster type of feeling. And it introduced me to Buddhism. It introduced me to Asian philosophy. And that very much got me on the path that has led directly to where I am now. So yeah. That's bonkers. I love this story. And I love that that just popped out the ether from another realm to us. Where there be dragons, 
Mm-hmm. Your temple is called Daiduji. Yes, yes. Which is big dragon temple. I know. And oh my God, I've got goosebumps all over my body right now. And you would think this is so obvious to me, but these conversations illuminate it. You know, you forget no. again about all these little pockets of magic yeah. and synchronicity, right? So yeah, it's wild. It's wild. It is wild. Pockets of magic and synchronicity. I love that. So where there be dragons, now you're on Dairuji Temple. Yeah. Incredible. So how did that happen then? Oh, uh, by the way, I just want to flag here as well. Like, so she and I just then had a very high context moment where we're smiling at each other. We've both got goosebumps. But here's the thing, right? Gretchen introduced to my coaching group a phrase called let it be huge. So what we do is like, I'm super sciencey. Gretchen's not like culty or anything like that. She's not going to try and make you do anything because of her magical powers. But what we have is this, this phrase where something like that, this pockets of magic and synchronicity where this story's just popped in and I've made the connection between dragons and dragons is why not? Let it be huge. Let it be magical. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm having it. And then I get to have that sit inside my body and we both do and we both have this kind of ethereal moment between us. And I wanted to invite you into that as well. Back to the timeline then. So you, you've you gone off to China. This has opened the door to your love of Buddhism. And you said it was your doorway to Asia, which I opened up this door to Asia. And I love that idea as well. Like, oh, another realm. How did you end up in Japan then? So you studied at university. What did you study out of interest? So I studied anthropology and oh. I studied abroad in Nepal. And then I did... Yeah, I came back and I was in the Bay Area of Northern California and there's a Tibetan community there. So I did my, I guess my senior thesis is still undergraduate, but I did my thesis on the Tibetan community in the Bay Area because there's a refugee community there. Mm-hmm. And so I was really interested now this sort of real interest around Buddhism had emerged. And at that point, it was more about Tibetan Buddhism. But Tibetan Buddhism is very esoteric. It's very beautiful, but it's quite esoteric and it's actually quite hierarchical. And I found a Zendo, which is a place where you can meditate that's Zen based. And I found Zen to be very accessible. Anybody can access this. And it's quite egalitarian. And it actually is. And now that I know more about Buddhism, the Zen lineage, and then in particular, the Sotoshu lineage, which is the lineage of the temple, Daiduji and my husband, it was, Binzai was sort of the, 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 the Zen Buddhism of the samurai. You know, they have the koans, the riddles. So it was the Zen for the elite the politicians, the samurai. And then Sotoshi was more of the Buddhism for the fisher and farmers. So it's really like the poor man's religion. And it's meant to be very accessible. So you don't have to be a priest to ha- to reach enlightenment. But in other sects or other Buddhism, you have to sort of go up this hierarchy. And so Zen is very egalitarian. And they use Zazen, which is meditation, as sort of the, the cornerstone of how you would reach enlightenment. So meditation is sort of the path you walk. 
And I found that out in college as I was sort of swimming in all of this new excitement over Buddhism. And I was really, really uh, quite involved in the Tibetan community, but I just immediately found that Zen, I was like, oh, I like this. An affinity maybe, like an an affinity. affinity. Yeah. That's exactly it. Again, just, I like this. This makes sense to me. And then uh, because of that, I decided to come to Japan. At that time, and probably even to this day, the best way to come is through, you know, teaching English. And so I did the JET program, which is quite established and they make it quite easy for you. So you have a place to live, you have a job. What's um, it called? J-E-T stands for Japan English. (laughs) Japan Japan Exchange Teaching Program, maybe. Okay. Yeah, because I think it's the JET program. Japan exchange or Japan English teaching? No, Japan exchange sounds more. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. Okay. Fine. <laughs> that's good to know. Cause I know what jet program means, but some people might not. People might okay. Not. Yeah. yeah. The teaching program that you're, you're working for the government. So you're in the schools. So a lot of people who come to Japan might work for a Kaiwa, which is completely different. It's usually after school hours for business men or women who want to improve their English for work, or maybe students who are studying extra. But the JET program, you're actually working directly for the government. So you're in the junior highs, usually sometimes elementary schools and sometimes high schools. So you really are immediately part of the community because you're working right with the students and you live in that community. And, you know, you're boss is sort of at the board of education. So I think it's a great program. If you want to come to Japan, I came because I had just this burgeoning desire to learn more about Asia and Buddhism and Zen. And then I did of course, meet my husband who is a Zen priest. (laughs) You couldn't script this stuff, could you? Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. And you weren't kind of sniffing around for a Zen priest, I'm assuming. (laughs) That's why even saying it, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> I love that. To be totally honest. <laughs> All the embarrassment <laughs> is so welcome. <laughs> I'm like, oh God. <laughs> Hearing myself talk. You well, sound that- like a, a Zen stalker. <laughs> yeah, seriously. We were laughing so hard. And I think enough time has passed that I can sort of tease myself. Well, okay, long story short, I met my husband. I didn't want to stay in Japan. I actually didn't love Japan. I didn't love the strictness of the culture. I found it quite repressive. And I thought, okay, well, that was interesting. That was fun. But I I actually had a job to go work with Where There Be Dragons again, which was based in Boulder. And so I was so excited because I I liked this company and I felt so close to it because I had gone on a trip with Chris, who's the director. So I was all set to go back to Boulder and I did go back, but I ended up getting pregnant with Keno. And that's like the big joke is that I got knocked up by the Zen priest. (laughs) That's got to be the name of your memoir. I got knocked up by a Zen priest. Well, it's like embarrassing to be like, yes, I'm interested in Buddhism, but I just got knocked up by the priest. (laughs) Is there anything um, more Zen than that though? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, it's funny. So yeah, yeah, it was wild because I went back to America and I moved to Boulder and then I, you know, realized I was pregnant. Then I just remember calling Keno. I mean, on a landline. Yeah. Tell him that I'm pregnant. 
And you have to really think about it in those days as well. Oh, it was my so goodness. expensive to call, so right? Expensive. There was a special code you had to put in before you dialed and stuff. You have no idea. You have no idea. And I had to like, I think he wasn't even the one that picked up. It's a temple. I'm like, hi, is Keno there? You know, I mean, just your heart is pounding, you know? Oh, I mean, it was just sort of terrifying to do yeah. all that. But he reacted so beautifully and he was just so excited and he like hopped on a plane and he came out to Colorado and we just began to build a life together. Yeah. Wow. That's a reinvention of money. I mean, let's be <laughs> fair here. Let's let's just think back on the stories you've already told. You don't do reinvention by halves. Do you? It's like boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Zero planning goes into any of them. They're all very spontaneous and driven by whims of, yes, this is what I want to do right now. I'm not a planner by nature. And yet you went on to move into the, move mm-hmm. it to Akita, move into the temple to create a life for yourself, to become yeah. part of the community, to have your four kids, three mm-hmm. of whom have left home now or two. Yes. Well, three. two and three has, you know, is on her way out. So... Yeah. Yes. Thank you for noticing that because I remember sharing with you when I was your client, I was going through just a weird malaise and I finally was able to pinpoint it. It was when my second son had moved out. Okay. I thought it's hard. It's Mm -hmm. hard when your children leave and we sometimes take it again. You know, I have a problem when people minimize grief and I thought, oh, here I've been minimizing how hard it is for my children to move out. And now my third child, my daughter is moving out in the spring and I'm so proud and excited and looking forward to her new life. But yeah, I know it'll be hard for me, but yes, I I do have four children and yes, we just created this life together. It's funny because people just thought we were sort of insane, you know? (laughs) I mean, it's pretty rad. It's pretty radical. I thought this is the wildest thing I could probably do. This is the most unexpected thing I could do. And that I actually mean by marrying Keno, because I really, it was hard for me to move back to Japan, if I'm honest. Like I knew that would be hard, you know, and I knew I loved Keno. I knew I wanted to be married to him, but it was a tough pill to swallow moving back to Japan. And I actually underestimated probably how hard it was going to be to live at the temple. And maybe that protected me and insulated me because, you know, when you're naive, And, you know, I thought, well, I can handle this, you know, or love will get us through the day and all these cliches. But uh, the reality was it was very hard to marry into a temple family and live in a very rural community. It was very, very hard. And, you know, it's like, wow, would I have done that if I had known it? Who knows? But there I did, you know. Who knows? Yeah. So it's almost like a moot question. It is a mute question. Yes. But if I look at my body compass, it's not a question I find delicious. (laughs) Right. Yes. Why? Exactly. And I think the, the, the good thing is, is I always made decisions either on my own or with Keno from a place, you know, people talk about that. Are you making these decisions from a place of fear or love? Are you making it, where are you making these decisions from? And I always felt like we consistently made decisions out of a place of love and respect and integrity. And how could you ever second guess that? So Mm -hmm. in that sense, I'm very happy with the decisions I've made, even though there were elements that were challenging. 
the reality of the consequences of those decisions, like moving to Japan. Well, the collateral of those decisions, definitely, yes. And Olga's quite a wild and woolly place, isn't it? It's a, mm-hmm. it's a peninsula that goes out into the Japan Sea and with Korea on the other side. And mm-hmm. it's very, very wild, harsh in the winter. There's been films made about it, which is really harsh. It's like fishermen, farmers, hard folk. Mm-hmm. The local mythical monster, the Namahage or creature, yeah. is pure terrifying. The children of the children of Olga are must be as hard as nails because they are yeah. introduced to these terrifying, terrifying things early on. Yeah. But I just wonder, what do you think it was? I mean, you said love and respect and integrity were the guiding things for you and Keno, but what do you think it was in you that Mm. allowed you to kind of not just jump ship and just go back to America or that kind of allowed you to, in Japanese, we say gamansuru, which is kind of like to, in its most kind of harsh terms is endure, but it also means tolerate. What do you think the quality is in you that, allowed you to survive this reinvention? Well, I remember talking to one of my best friends on the phone, my friend Natalie, and saying, I thought, this is hard. This is actually hard to live here. But I said, I know it has something to teach me. I really had this deep feeling of living here is teaching me something. And I might not know what it is, but I belong here for some reason. So there was always this weird sense of, this is the path I should be on. Ah. Just this desire to see where it would lead me, what it would reveal about myself, what it would sort of unearth and uncover. And your description of Oga is spot on. I mean, it's a rough place and the culture is just the superficialness of different languages, different foods, even different rituals and customs. Like you just keep going deeper and deeper and you think this is just fundamentally different Again, I grew up in suburbia by these very effusive, warm, supportive parents. And then I met with this harshness, right? That reflected in the actual weather, the actual landscape, but also like the culture. And that was so abrupt and confronting for me because I was sort of used to a lot of softness and support. Mm -hmm. And aren't you wonderful? You know, and here I was sort of met by you have to prove yourself. And I felt very fragile. I felt very sort of entitled and soft. And I think I was curious to see what strength would emerge from that experience. And I did discover, oh, I am quite resilient. And I don't have to sacrifice the qualities I like about myself, which tend to be warmth or I'm very affectionate and I'd like to think of myself as those ways and I don't want to lose those things, uh, but I can also sort of now go toe to toe with this sort of more demanding environment, right? It's quite demanding here. And again, it's just so different, fundamentally different than how I was raised. Like you said, fishermen, farmers, these are tough people. Like you said, they're tough. (laughs) I was raised so differently. So I think maybe that was something that was calling to me. Oh, interesting. I love that you said you don't have to sacrifice parts of you, that these things can all sit together. And mm-hmm. I think they do sit together. That Yeah, Japan is fundamentally different and countryside folk are fundamentally different as well. And especially somewhere like Olga, which is so remote and so 
cold in the winter and so cut off. Yeah. And windy and all that good stuff. And in the episode six of this season, Deanne talks about parts and not marginalizing parts of yourself. Mm. Mm. And I really love that, like the idea that it's not an either or. It's very right. often how we're we're raised. And I think Japan has this nuance in it as well, where there's just a lot of things that sit next to one another and you bring it to the fore based on your credibility, based on your you said you have to prove yourself based on your relationship with somebody, based on how much honne, how much real mm. stuff you can show. And I really mused on this when I was up in Olga, when I visited you. Thank you again for having me. And when I saw these namahage, these creatures, and how they were terrorizing, literally terrorizing the children, there was children, they were just crying in the restaurant. I felt like crying. <laughs> I felt, And I just thought, yeah, to live here from a very early age, to be able to survive, literally survive, literally survive, you have to follow a certain amount of rules. If somebody tells you the wind's to this to do that, you need to know that the Nabahage is going to come and get you if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. Something like this. That's my logical brain doing this, but it sets you up for the harshness of that environment. Yes. It's very humbling. It's It's very very humbling. humbling. Yes, that's exactly it. I'm so glad you can see that and offer that perspective because like you said, it's reflecting the harshness. There is an element of survival here. The Mm. winters are brutal. Fishermen actually do die quite a bit here because the waves are really rough. A man died about a month ago that Kenna was telling me about, and he was an expert fisherman. There's just such a harshness to living here that you need that toughness. And We've talked about this, and I think it was in your previous podcast I listened to that the post 311 was sort of this moment where people were like, do I stay or do I go? And that was another reinvention for me because I thought I was so honored to be part of Tohoku at that time. And that resiliency of Northern Japan, which extends throughout all of Japan fully, it does. And in particular, in these rural areas and these northern areas. And I want to say we weren't directly affected by this tsunami, but we were sort of cut off because you have to go through Iwate or Miyagi, Ken, all those areas that were affected to get to Akita. So we're sort of dependent. And so we were not directly impacted, but you you felt that collective, well, we've talked about this, that sort of collective grief of trauma. Uh, Yes, collective trauma. But for me, it was a really deep reawakening of, wow, I'm proud to live here. I'm Same. proud to, yes. And it was really weird. born out of those struggles, right? Yeah, it was really weird. It was like roots that jetted down yes. somehow. Yes. It was very, very odd. And for other people, it was their cue to go, I'm out. Which is fine. And that's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's completely Truly. fine. Yeah. No judgment there. But it was very, very odd and visceral feeling for me. Visceral. It wasn't, yes. it wasn't in my head. It wasn't logical. It wasn't born out of the consensus reality. It was something visceral. I have no idea. I've got goosebumps again. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but that's the best way to put it. It's wild. It's visceral. And yeah, and of course, living on a temple, something that people may not be aware of is that you are dealing with dead people all the time because you do all the funerals and Mm -hmm. so on. And I know that when I was there, a fisherman had died just the week before and you said that Keno had tended to him. So that's Mm -hmm. one of his things, right? Isn't it that he Mm -hmm. has to go out as the priest in the local community and tend to these 
these people who have passed. So it's ever present. And I love that. I love that. It's a good reminder. I love being in touch with you because it's always a good reminder of that kind of what a community requires. Mm. And it's been kind of, it's it's out of balance because we don't see that. And I feel almost like that's what, mm, I need to choose my words really carefully here, but I sometimes feel like we bring a little bit of that back into our community, that closeness to death and that tending to it somehow. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, of course. It's just the reality of life. My husband is very, very engaged in our local community. Yeah. Directly with the members of the temple, which of course have been part of the temple for many, many generations. So there's this Mm -hmm. lineage. And I feel terribly indebted in a positive way to our members, right? They That I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to care for them and make sure that they feel cared for and welcomed and honored at the temple. But my husband's incredibly connected to the community. And then I would say I am as well through the temple, also through my children, because I have raised my children locally in the local school district. It just takes time, right? It just takes a lot, a lot of time. It's the dailiness of it. The We've talked about things being mundane, but they turn out to be very sacred. That's that sense of connection to community that it's born out of just that day in and day out sense of showing up in the community. And then we created Lighthouse Circle together. And I was just looking back on it today. And I'm just, as you mentioned early on, I'm just really humbled by how beautifully it's turned out. When we began it, we sort of had these three core tenets, mindfulness, community, and ritual. And so much of that, I feel, is reflected from my experience at the temple, right? And so that sense of mindfulness is, it doesn't have to be a Buddhist meditation, but that presence with your daily life, presence with reality. This is grief, this is pain, or this is joy, this is whatever. You're present to your life, I would say, is what that is meant to be, that the presence to your life. And with loss, it's so personal, it's so intimate. It's like touching right there, right on the skin, you know? And so that sort of intimacy and being present to that. And then what you were saying before about community of how important community is for the, so there's this really personal, intimate aspect of, oh, I've lost my mom and it was my mom. But then there's this other element of community, right? Of this sort of shared experience and holding space for one another and supporting one another. And then there's ritual, which... I've learned so much, so very much by being part of the temple because there's so much ritual yeah, <laughs> in Japan. Of course. There's just so much ritual in Japan and then so much ritual at the temple. And I've been very curious about it. And I think I'm starting to even able to pull it apart a little bit easier because I thought, well, what is ritual and what is the value of ritual? And so... I've been thinking about this and I would say there's a few categories. So there's one type of ritual that is what we would almost call like tradition or routine, right? So it's like, oh, every Christmas I would bake cookies with my mom or every morning I have a a routine of walking, just sort of these habitual things that add a sense of what's the word I'm looking for? Consistency to your life, right? And it's comforting. Yes. And it's very comforting sort of passing that on through generations or doing it regularly 
creating routine and patterns is just very, very, I've used this word quite a bit, so I'm going to use it again. It keeps you sort of tethered, that sense of I'm walking on earth, I'm grounded. And then there's sort of the ceremony, which would be a lot of the hoji, like the memorial services or the funerals. It's a a communal ceremony of coming together. And again, sort of saying, this is collectively what we value. These are our belief systems. And it's sort of re- acknowledging them, right? Reinforcing them. And it's more communal, right? It's more communal. But then there's this other sort of deeper part of ritual that can be quite intense. Mm. And it gets you out of your regular thinking mind. And even when you were talking about the visceralness of 311, Mm. where you're sort of experiencing something new for yourself, and it doesn't even have to be quote unquote good or negative, but oh, wow, this is a powerful And this, whatever the ritual is, is sort of creating this opportunity to experience something really directly. And I've learned so much about that. All three of those elements through the temple, the intimacy of life, the presence of life, being aware of this present moment, and then community, and then these these rituals and different types of rituals, as I've just sort of gone through, like the value of sort of the communal ones versus more the simple, comforting, routine ones versus the more intense ones that you don't need all the time, but you do need occasionally to sort of make sense of these reinventions of oneself or loss or death yeah. or when you're sort of going through a big transition. I think these are really important, powerful things that I'm so grateful we've brought into our lighthouse circle and other elements of our life that I'm really grateful that I think I, again, this is the learning that I think I wanted to do. And when you step outside of your own culture, you can see things sometimes more easily that it's been available to me to learn some of these things through my time at the temple. Amazing. What a beautiful explanation there. And you've connected me back to the essence of Lighthouse Circle as well, because now it's, I'd say it's routine for us, but Mm. also because that essence is just there. It's just the Mm. bedrock, right, of what we do. But I'd forgotten that you had kind of designed this around, of course, the three tenets and then the three tenets that you just, the three types of ritual and Mm. how you've woven those through the, the circle's contents is just absolutely gorgeous. It's funny talking about rituals. So I'm kind of putting this matrix over the Catholics as well, because both of us have a Catholic background. And I was thinking about all those things like, you know, first Holy Communion and then your confirmation and then last rites and all and weddings and baptisms and all these things, like all these markers of lives. But when you were talking about those parts that get you into it, I was like, what's that? And I was thinking, In the Catholic Mass, there's a lot of places where you go really deep in your voice. Mm. Like one of them is like through him, with him, in him, Mm. in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And that's where you kind of, that's where I think you get into it. And then, you know, ding, then the, the, Mm -hmm. the, and then the spell is cast on the bread that turns it into wine, uh, into the body and blood of Christ and what have you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And in my previous podcast, which is just me talking for an hour and a half, it felt like half an hour was, I said, I think the Catholics are onto something. And I was talking about exorcism and how <laughs> people, my, again, my community had done such yeah. lovely things for me that had almost pulled a demon of sadness yeah. out of me. Mm-hmm. So 
you should have a listen. It's long, but it's kind of, I listened to it yesterday and I quite like it. It's, you know, just ramblings. So I think this is a lovely place to start to land this. So I wanted to ask you, like, when have you risen like a phoenix from the flames? I would say that time when I finally was able to integrate the grief of my, the death of my brother, Chris, which you were so integral in helping me really integrate that, right? Like that, that final step, that final step of what does this mean? Mm. Which again, I talked at great length in the previous podcast, but I hadn't fully, fully integrated it. And I think really embracing that this is meaningful to me to talk about loss, to talk about Mm. grief, to open up spaces for people to talk about this topic that people think is depressing or they want to avoid. And here we are where we just find tremendous beauty and value and humanity. I mean, what else unites us? (laughs) You know, birth and death, you know, and just to have a space to talk. I'm just forever humbled by the community we've created. And it has been such a joy for me to find this calling. I mean, I would say it's a calling and to share it with you and to share it with the other people who have joined it and to find that kind of meaning through work is tremendously satisfying. And I'm just so terribly happy to have that in my life. And that was Huge. (laughs) Let it be huge. That would be you. Again, it's turning something that had always really felt heavy for me and turned it into something that is truly life giving. What could you ask for more, right? In terms of something that's transformational, in terms of your inner landscape and then how you engage with people around you and then the people that it draws into you. I mean, the people who are part of our circle are just tremendously beautiful, intelligent, fierce people. And I'm so grateful to have them in my life. It's next level. I'm constantly surprised. And I get, like I say, it's where I get to be my most human because it's just, it's a place of no bullshit whatsoever. And it's just going back to let it be huge. Like remember the socks. Yes. (laughs) So we're talking about the mundane. Yes. Socks start, somebody said they really missed the socks of their person. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I'll keep it nice and broad like that. And I was like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. I have a whole Instagram (laughs) dedicated to my husband's socks. And we're all like, what? That's me. I actually do. If you want to follow it, it's at case socks. Right. (laughs) It's like now here's the thing. All the people on that call then went over there and and, uh, liked it and followed it. And then now conversations have started up about the type of socks and stuff like this. And somebody sent me a private message saying, is it weird that this account is healing me? Mm. How weird is that? And I'm like, not really, but that's the mundane being sacred, right? It's like, who knew that 10 years ago when my husband went off to Chile and he left a pair of his socks out and he went away for five weeks and I thought, why am I annoyed by that? I'm not going to see him for five weeks. If his socks aren't there, it means he's not here. Of course, I took it to the nth degree or whatever. And then for, for many months, maybe a year or so, I was like, I should stop photographing his socks every night and then putting them on Instagram. And then I just did it one day. And now it's healing people. Yeah, it is, though. It actually is. I love it. 
I mean, I say that with a great lightness, but you know, it's that's turning the mundane into the sacred and we invite you to do that too. I think it's mm. just so beautiful. Tell me one mundane thing that is sacred to you today. Today? Oh goodness, put me on the spot. Oh, answering the door maybe? <laughs> sacred interruption? Yeah, yeah. I just had lunch with my daughter. She got out early and I had lunch with my daughter and we take these things for granted, but here yeah. I am sitting across the table from this beautiful human yeah. who's about to embark on her life. Yeah. And I do not take it for granted. It's very normal and mundane, but it gives me just so much joy. Beautiful. To share lunch with my daughter. Beautiful. So Gretchen, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? Oh gosh. Yes. What does that mean to me? I just think that's an invitation to stay curious and to keep unlearning and being comfortable with not knowing and allowing the the magic and mystery and sacredness of life to inspire me. It feels there's a lot out there and it's an invitation to really enjoy life and to respect other people to really honor other people and how they live their lives and how, yeah, socks can bring healing and to really listen to other people. And so it's ultimately a feeling of deep connection. Gretchen, thank you so much for this invitation. Um, That's the first time somebody's answered in that way. People answer in every different kind of way. It's been really amazing to hear your story today. I've heard new things about you from your I mean, it's just really remarkable, the thread that runs through your story once the door to Asia was opened, where there be dragons led you to Dairuji, the big dragon temple where you've made your life and you have this connection to the earth and how the earthquake shook you into belonging and shook you Mm. into the earth and how you live on this incredible peninsula where you've become an integral part of that community, but you also know that you're always learning and sitting outside with this incredible kind of integrated parts of you, that warmth and that kind of East Coast of uh, East Coast suburban yeah. <laughs> warmth and softness that you bring to this this harsh peninsula, and all these reinventions that you've had, starting from when you were five, the invitation to your gorgeous mum and grandma who joined us on the trip today. Like, I feel like we've had a little road trip with them because road yeah. trip seems to be a bit of a, a theme for it you. Is. We put on our backpacks and we w- went on a little trip around everywhere. So where can we find you? Yeah. So we have a Instagram page for Dairuji. Mm-hmm. It's at, uh, you'll probably put this in the show notes, oh, yes. but I think at Dairuji underbar oga oga.com we also have a website if you just google dairuji or even zen temple english you know it would probably pop up and then we also have an instagram for the work we do together which is lighthouse circle those would probably be the two best ways to find us and then from there there's links and all sorts of stuff yeah all sorts of good stuff Yeah. yeah Gretchen's always dropping lovely, beautiful things on that Instagram page. And if anybody's interested, we're starting a new round in January for the six-month live sessions. 
And you can also get free content from us as well, because we just love giving away our, Mm -hmm. uh, well, the lovely things that Gretchen's designed for us to hold the space for everybody. So Gretchen, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. This has been the Legends Podcast, season seven, episode eight, I think. (laughs) Yes, episode eight. We hope you're all well. We wish you a lovely season. Thank you to Laura Marushima for all her work on the back end, her admin work. And thank you to our editor. And we wish you a lovely, lovely gifting season. We wish for peace in this. I mean, it's always a tumultuous time in the world, but it seems to be very present in the moment, at the moment. And thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention. And if it's Guests Week, big love and gratitude to our guests. Go follow them everywhere. Shout out to Laura Marushima for her podcast management and support. I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends Podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.